Let's open our inspired history book. The Word of God, King James Bible version of 1611, to the Gospel of John in the 16th chapter. It is a history book. And we're reading an important event in history and reading about it that changed the world by the power of God with men. John chapter 16, without any introduction, let's just go right straight to verses 7 and 8. John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Amen and amen. amen. That's all the farther we're going to go today, because to try to go farther, we would not do justice to verses 9, 10, and 11, because each of those deserve a full explanation with lots of detail from God's word about the reproving ministry of the apostles about sin, righteousness, and judgment. But we'll take care of verses 7 and 8, and especially verse 8. If you wanted one word to think about today for the theme of this passage here and what we'll consider in the second service, it is reprove. It is the word reprove. The apostles had a ministry of reproof. The apostles were called to rebuke. They were called to indict, arraign, censure, charge, and condemn men for sin, the lack of righteousness, and the fact that they had killed the Lord of righteousness and judgment to come. And so we want to learn that today. We want to see that in this verse and the rest of Scripture by following the pattern that we compare Scripture with Scripture or spiritual things with spiritual things to find out the intent of the Word of God. Reprove. They had a ministry of reproof, and they were called to do it with words. You haven't been, and I'll prove that in the second service. You haven't been called to reprove men with words. You've been called to reprove them with your life, your actions. And so you don't get to take some of the verses of the Bible and apply them to yourself because they don't apply. The fact that Nehemiah took some of the Jews in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23, pulled their hair out, punched them, and cursed them is something Nehemiah could do because he was the governor. When you're the governor and you pass a law that allows you to punch somebody in the face, pull their hair out and spit on them and curse them, then you can use that verse. But until then, the verse doesn't apply to you. And we want to learn what verses in the Bible do apply to us. And you read some of them last night that we want to reprove the world. And the strongest reproof we can give the world is a righteous life. But that's for the second service. Right now, we want the word reprove that's right here in the first half of verse 8. When he is come, that's the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. But let's back up and get into verse 7 for just a little while. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. The word nevertheless is there, which is a disjunctive, drawing a contrast with something that's in the context. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. I've got to tell you something that you don't want to hear. I've got to tell you something that's making you sorrowful. I've got to tell you something that's making you fearful 
and you're wishing it wasn't true. And that is that he was leaving them. And that's why they were sorrowful. Because in the sixth verse, Jesus told them, Because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. I've told you that I'm going away, and I have told you that persecution is coming, and so you're sorrowful about it. Nevertheless, in spite of the fact that you don't like this message, I've got to tell you the truth. And so understand why that nevertheless is there. It's setting a contrast with their feelings about Jesus leaving while he's trying to explain to them that my departure is for your benefit. And if you had your perspective right, you would want me to leave sooner than later instead of holding on to me as you wish you could right now. The apostles were the greatest men in the history of the world by a variety of measures, and I shared that with you last Lord's Day, and I hope that you'll remember that about them. And it shows what God can do with a man who gives himself to the Lord. Come, follow me. What did they do? They dropped their nets and followed Jesus Christ, and he made them great by the power of the Holy Ghost. I'll not repeat the things that I told you last Lord's Day. The truth that is stated here in this first clause, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Forget your feelings. They're irrelevant. Your feelings are corrupt. Your feelings are wrong. Your feelings are leading to wrong thinking. You should be asking, where are you going, Master? Because that would lead to a profitable discussion. Being sorrowful isn't leading to a profitable discussion. But I want to tell you the truth. And there's great truth right here in John 16, 7 and 8. It's a ministry that changed the world. And I shared some of those things with you in the preparatory email yesterday. The truth. There was the truth of how expedient it was for the eleven to get the spirit of Jesus Christ. There was also the truth of the power they were going to have to reprove the world. You know, you can't know the truth of politics. You don't know the truth of politics. You don't have insider information because that insider information has a security clearance attached to it that you don't know. What you know is the spin that the media and the politicians put on what's going on to mislead you so that you won't know what's really going on. But that isn't the case with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no spin There is unadulterated truth, plain truth, that we can confirm in the history book of the apostles, and that's the book of Acts. But here's the statement, and then we have the fulfillment of it in the book of Acts. You know, so many spend so much time worrying about what's going on behind closed doors of government. Here we have a closed door of an upper room and the roadway from Jerusalem to Bethany, but it's all put down in print for us, and there's no spin Embrace it. When I read a statement like this, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, I get excited. Jesus is about to declare some truth, and you should want that truth. There isn't any other truth to really get very excited about. This is the truth that's exciting right here in front of us. The lies that come out due to media and due to political spin protect sensitive data. But the incredible truth of the matter right before us is here, and it's in the book of Acts. The apostles are foolishly neglected today by the misapplication of the Great Commission. Because everyone thinks the Great Commission is still hanging out there to be fulfilled, they neglect and overlook 
and demean the work of the apostles because the apostles fulfilled it. It's a shame. Look with me back at Mark chapter 16, just to one of the places in the Bible that tell us that the apostles went and did what they were told to do. Mark chapter 16, there's about 10. There's about 10 clear statements in the New Testament that the Great Commission is fulfilled. And we're just one of the crazy churches that believe the Bible. Most churches make their mission statement. Do any of you ever go online and look up the mission statement of churches? The mission statement of most churches is to fulfill the Great Commission. That is saying to the world, we don't have a clue what the Bible teaches or what our purpose is. To put that as a mission statement for a church. The mission statement was for 11 men. In Mark chapter 16, verse 14, afterward he appeared unto the, the 11 as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart. He rebuked them. He reproved them because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. That's a reproving message. Do it my way or else. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Now you have a King James Bible in front of you. So you have the verses that I've read so far, and you have two more. Modern Bible versions take away from verse 9 on, and especially the last two verses, because of what these two verses say. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following, Amen. And we say with Mark, Amen, Amen. that the apostles went and fulfilled that great commission. Back to John chapter 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. These men were an integral part of the greatest movement in human history on this evil planet. These men, these fishermen, no man that wants to be great in the sight of the Lord should ever wonder how he's going to do it. Turn your life over to the Lord. Give it to him. Stop thinking. Stop feeling. Start obeying. That's all you got to do. Stop thinking. These men had had lots of thoughts. They wanted to be the best fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They wanted to build a new house in a nice subdivision and have 20 acres for four-wheelers. They were going to do this by being the best fishermen possible. They had many thoughts, and they had feelings about leaving all that behind to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, but they obeyed, and they obeyed, and God gave them the Holy Spirit just like he has given to us, and they were great. And I don't want to understate the importance of them as the foundations, Revelation chapter 21, and the stones of the foundation of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and his churches. Consider just a few events, and I put these in your email yesterday, but I want to repeat them for you to appreciate what's here. You said, when you agreed with me earlier this morning, that Psalm 27.4 accurately describes you. 
if it doesn't accurately describe you, you shouldn't be here for the rest of this service. If it does describe you, then you want to behold the beauty of the Lord. Well, the beauty of the Lord is what he's done in history and what he is in character and conduct. And what did these men do that God sent to earth around 30 A.D.? They changed the world. John the Baptist, Jesus said he was the greatest man born of women. So when I write that, I'm writing scripture. If you don't like it, you have a problem with God, not with me. Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest man born of women. And he was the first one. He was the first Baptist preacher. John the Baptist. And he unloaded with a ministry of reproof. All you have to do is go to Matthew chapter 3 and find him rebuking the Pharisees that came to his baptism. Jesus prophesied that because his generation did not receive him as the Messiah of God, the greatest tribulation in the history of the world was about to be unfolded on that nation. Greater than World War II, greater than World War I, greater than Korea or Vietnam. We trust the Bible. It's a history book. And the greatest tribulation that ever befell a people befell the Jews in 70 A.D. for rejecting Jesus of Nazareth. These were huge events. This is a history book. I'm sharing that history with you in summary form. All human history is divided between B.C. and A.D. 4,000 years of B.C., 2,000 years of A.D. Jesus Christ is the dividing person in all nations whenever they write a date. The mystery of godliness which the Bible says is great without controversy. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, summarizes Jesus Christ and the preaching of the apostles because it says he was preached in the world and preached to the Gentiles and believed on in the world. Nothing is greater in heaven or earth than the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and he's just hours from starting those three events here in John 16. The greatest religion on earth and membership is Christianity. Don't ever forget it. How in the world did that happen? How did Jesus of Nazareth, from the backwoods of the Sea of Galilee, be the founder of the largest religion on earth? And you raise your hand and you say to me, 99.9% of them are in heresy. That's part of his plan. Haven't you read his whole plan? That's part of the plan. Don't let that bother you. It's still the largest religion in the world. How did that happen? This world was a bunch of idolaters. The enemies of Jesus Christ said the apostles had turned the world upside down. Emperor Constantine chose to convert nominally to Christianity for political help. One holy book dwarfs all other holy books in sales, study, and spiritual influence worldwide. Miracles done for 40 years by the apostles exceed any other claimed supernatural events that have any evidence for them. The craft and sales of most idolaters were destroyed or impaired by the apostles. That's why there was an uproar in certain cities of Asia because the apostle Paul and his fellow preachers were destroying their craft and their occupation and their income. Do you understand things were changing? Because they hit the world with a message of reproof. They told the world they were wrong. When there's reproof, you're being told you're wrong. You're being charged with a crime or a fault. And they did it. 
And I love them for it. And I love the Lord Jesus Christ for sending them. And I want every man that's in this assembly to grasp and embrace the fact that if you'll give yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, He can give you the power of the Holy Spirit to be everything and anything you should be. As a husband, as a father, as an employee, as an employer, as a Christian, as a neighbor, as a citizen, you can do it because there's power for you. It's available for you. And these men were mighty men, and we thank God for them. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. That's the truth. Some big things were happening. It is expedient for you. Expedient means that it is conducive to advantage. It's to your profit. It's to your value. It's fit and suitable for this to happen. It is expedient for you that I go away. God had glorious things planned for the apostles that were dependent on Jesus leaving. The great comfort of the New Testament, the earnest of our eternal inheritance, the seal that were God's children, the power to do good, and so much more was all dependent on the Holy Spirit coming. This is history. Listen, I make fun of the three ships that sailed from Portugal or Spain. I can't remember, and I don't care. I don't care if they sailed from Switzerland, even though it's landlocked. I don't care. Is it landlocked? I don't care. This is history that matters. If Switzerland fell off the earth, I wouldn't care. I just hope they make a deposit in the U.S. Treasury before they go knowing a little bit about that nation. This is history. Brethren, I'm trying to excite you in the Word of God. There's nothing in your flesh, there's nothing in the world, and the devil certainly doesn't want you to be excited about the Lord Jesus Christ because he really hates verse 11. He hates verse 11. He doesn't want me to get to verse 11. The apostles were going to reprove the world of judgment. Why? Because the prince of this world is judged. We learned that in John chapter 12. I want you to embrace the word of God and be excited about the truth that's being told right here. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. I am not going to give you what you want to hear. I am not going to change my ministry to make you men happy. I'm not going to hang around for another couple of years. I'm leaving, and I'm leaving very soon. And there's a good reason for me leaving. It's better for you. It is expedient for you that I go away. The replacement comforter of the Holy Ghost would be better than Jesus Christ in a number of ways. Things often seem grievous to you or to me that are expedient for us. The opening passage on Thursday night, young Colin, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire. How do you get perfect? you got to have problems. Well, when the problems come, you don't think they're very expedient. The only expediency you can think of is I wish they'd go away right now. But they're expedient for teaching you patience, and patience is the mark of Christian perfection. So it's, it's not always visible to us. Paul's perspective was so well-focused he knew about expediency that he thought death was far more expedient than living. It is far better, he said, to depart and to be with Christ than to be here. So he had the right perspective about expediency. It is expedient that I go away. They didn't want him to leave. 
But the planned and prophesied blessings couldn't come until he was gone. Remember John 7? The Holy Ghost would not be given until Jesus was glorified. Peter on the day of Pentecost said, Therefore being by the right hand of God, exalted, which is a synonym for glorified, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. So here we are in John 16, 50 days from it happening, six months after being told he had to be glorified for it to happen. We're right in the middle. And it's 2,000 years old now for us, but it changed the world. You were born into a Christian nation. How many Christian nations were there in 10 B.C.? Christian nations. How about 50 A.D.? Christian nations. Israel doesn't count. Israel was the most anti-Christian nation on earth then, like it is now. What's happened? Why were you born into a Christian nation? Eleven fishermen did a decent job. And the Lord was with them. And, And don't say to me again, but they're all heretics. That's prophesied as well. God will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. You thank the Lord that he's chosen you from, before, from the beginning of the world, that you would believe the truth. It's a huge blessing. That I go away. There was a divine order and plan to Jesus Christ's ministry and that of the Holy Ghost also. It is our duty. It is our privilege. It should be our pleasure to always embrace God's will for his order of events. To embrace it. God's order of events. Heaven's temporary envoy was Jesus. Heaven's permanent ambassador is the Holy Ghost. Which do you want to have? A temporary envoy? That's a lesser office than the ambassador. Or a permanent ambassador. And I want to play with those words very much, but I want you to know that I will not leave you comfortless. I will send you the comforter, and he will be with you forever, is what Jesus said. But the purchase price and the victory for that great blessing had to be paid. And that was Jesus dying on the cross. Following Jesus' departure to heaven, we would have one comforter there and one comforter here. Does that sound better? One comforter in heaven and one on earth. An intercessor there and an intercessor here. The intercessor there is working directly with God the Father. The intercessor here prays for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Come on, it's expedient. And this expedience isn't as much for us We're taking some of the scraps from it as it was for the 11 because these words were directed to the 11 apostles and it was about them because verse 8 is going to be to them, not to us, that they were supposed to go into the world and reprove the world with this power of the Holy Ghost. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. That would be breaking God's plan and God's order of events if I don't go away. And if I don't go away... You will not get the Holy Spirit that I've been speaking about in John chapter 14 and 15 and here in 16 as well. The comforter will not come unto you. Let me remind you a little bit about that word comforter. The word comfort is not an effeminate, weak word. Comfort, to strengthen. How effeminate does that sound? To strengthen, morally or spiritually. To encourage Hearten in spirit and in sight. Like inciting a riot. You know, trying to get your attention about words. Comfort. It's a masculine word. 
to strengthen, to encourage, to hearten, to inspirit, to incite. Commentators want to play around with the word comforter. They don't like the word comforter because they can't make it fit with the word reprove. That little reconciliation is so simple that you should laugh at it with me. He comforted the eleven to reprove the world. Now, is that deep? He was their comforter. He wasn't the world's comforter. He was the eleven's comforter to reprove the world and not leave any comfort at all. The apostle, the last thing the apostles ever wanted to leave with an audience was comfort. Just go read their sermons. <laughs> let's take, let's try Stephen. Stephen would have to be the gentlest of them all, wouldn't he? A man chosen to take care of widows' tables. A deacon. He gets to his invitation. The organ starts up with, just as I am. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ear, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. That's Stephen. Oh, yeah. He wasn't out for comfort. He was out for reproving them. Love this word, the comforter, to strengthen morally or spiritually, to encourage, to hearten, to inspirit, to incite. They want to make the word comforter mean advocate. The Holy Spirit is not our advocate. I don't, know, I don't know why they won't read the Bible. Do you know who your advocate is? You have an advocate with the Father? Jesus Christ the righteous. The Holy Spirit is not the advocate. Jesus is up there in heaven as our advocate. We're on earth and the Holy Spirit is comforter with a capital C because he morally strengthens us, spiritually strengthens us. We can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us by his Spirit. He encourages us, heartens us, gives us courage for the task at hand. He inspirits us and incites us to do something drastic. And that drastic thing we ought to do is change our lives for him and follow him with all our might. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Hear the Lord. Men, if you'll let me depart, I will send you God's presence and power for what you need. He'll take care of you. I will not leave you comfortless as we've learned through these chapters. Verse 8. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And when he has come, I hope you understand verse 7. I want you to understand that verse 7 is the truth of the history of the world. I want you to understand that Jesus Christ didn't care about your feelings in a matter like this. He had to go with what God had decreed and purposed and the right order of events, and he did. I want you to look at verse 7 and realize that the gift of the Comforter was primarily for the 11, and we get him indirectly, because I want you to see the 11 changing the world by reproving the world. They went out as uneducated fishermen and told the world, high and low, that they were wrong. They went out and told the Jewish leadership that had 20 years in seminary and six lettered designations behind their names that they were wrong. They sat with Roman proconsuls, governors, and men sent by Caesar and Caesar himself and told them they were wrong. They sat with philosophers at the Areopagite in Athens and told those philosophers that they were wrong. That's powerful. It's wonderful stuff. Lord, 
we rejoice in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you look at verse 7, I want you to remember that there's truth there, that there's a powerful event taking place to change the world, that it was primarily expedient for the 11 apostles, and the Comforter gave them a special ministry, but they have left this world, but the Comforter hasn't left this world. He's here forever with us. He doesn't do the same thing for us as he did for them, but he gives us the power to reprove the world by our lives. If you read Ephesians 5, 1 through 17 carefully last night, you saw the ministry of the Holy Spirit sandwiching the most important verses in that passage. The Holy Spirit is in verse 18, and the Holy Spirit is in verse 9. And in between those verses are the verses we're going to get in the second assembly about how we should live our lives. Because our lives of reproving the world are because of the power of the Holy Spirit with us. We get to have little apostolic ministries. But while they did it verbally and with the pen, we do it with our lives. They didn't get along with anyone. We're supposed to get along with everyone. But living a righteous life in front of them as much as we can. I hope you understood what I just said. They had to do the reproving. And they reproved anyone they sat with. If Paul was with Felix, he didn't ask what was going on in Rome. And what's the best school for me to get a second degree in political theory? He didn't talk about the weather. He didn't check on Felix's grandchildren. He just reasoned with Felix about, do you know the content of that little discussion? Righteousness, temperance, judgment to come. What was his effect? Comforting? Felix trembled. That's an apostolic ministry. That's beautiful. Okay, John 16 and verse 8. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Men, I will send the comforter to you. Let me go. It's expedient for you that I go so that I can send the comforter. When the comforter comes, and I'm going to send him to you, I'm not just sending him to the world. I'm sending him to you. And that's repeated in John 14, John 15, and John 16. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, to you. You are going to get an infusion of unadulterated, unapologetic, pure, absolute truth to unload on the world. It's beautiful. This is history that counts right here in front of you. And when he has come... So it's a point in time. And when he, it's not an it. When he is come, is come where? Inside them. Because he was already with them, but he would be in them. Is that a different, do you understand the difference in those words? Look at over at John chapter 14. John chapter 14, I just want to remind you of the importance of the place of the Holy Spirit in the apostles. John 14, verse 16, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth. Notice the emphasis on truth, because these apostles were going to unload truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him. How do they know him? For he dwelleth with you. He dwelleth present tense with them in the person of Jesus. For he dwelleth with you. 
and he shall be in you. Oh, yes. They were going to be infused with power from on high. And they were. What does it say in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4? That the sound of a rushing mighty wind filled the house where they were all assembled, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. When you're filled with something, that means it went inside you. You were filled, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. So we are at verse 8, when he has come. The context needs to dis to dictate the identity of he, that male singular personal pronoun, that's God the Holy Spirit, and I hope you're solidly established with that in this context of John chapters 14, 15, and 16. The comforter is exactly God the Holy Spirit. This is God, Jehovah, on earth. I had to write someone yesterday wanting to pick on our website and my proverb commentaries for not calling God Yahweh. I've never been introduced to Yahweh. I wrote him back and I said, I'm a Bible believer. I believe the King James Bible. And I've been through it, but I can't find Yahweh ever mentioned there. I find Jehovah as the way that the, the, the Hebrew tetragrammaton is pointed up with vowels so it can be pronounced. In fact, when I look around in the Bible, I keep finding men with Jeho at the front end of their name or Jah at the back end of their name, but I've never found Yahweh fat. It's Jehoshaphat. And you know why I said all that? Do you know who we're dealing with when the Holy Spirit comes upon men? We're dealing with God Jehovah coming upon men. When the Bible says that the Spirit moved upon the face of the waters, that's Jehovah moving on the face of the waters. It ought to excite you and terrify you all at once to be thinking about Jehovah on earth going into fishermen. He went into fishermen. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ right now, guess where he is right now? He's inside you. Isn't he bearing witness with your spirit that you're a son of God? Isn't he causing you to cry, Abba, Father? I know you're not crying at all the time. Sometimes you're crying for chocolate milk and a PBJ, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But sometimes you cry out, Abba, Father, and it's coming from the inside because Jehovah's inside you. This is our religion. They don't even have a God out there, let alone a God in them. Do you know where they put their gods? They put them up on little pedestals and they get down in front of them and they never do anything. The Bible says they have eyes, but they don't see. Ears, but they can't hear. They have feet, but you've got to carry them around because they can't move. They can't do anything. They're absolutely stupid blocks of stone. And the Bible says anyone that worships them is like unto them. Right. We have God Jehovah. I want you to love John 16, verses 7 and 8, in us. But that is secondary to the lesson. The lesson is, he went into those fishermen. They were afraid. They wanted to hide outside of Judea. Do you remember what we've learned so far? They were in an upper room because for, what does it tell us? For fear of the Jews. Believe me, in one second, they're going to get some comfort. What does the word comfort mean? Does it mean to strengthen? Does it? Did they come out of that upper room? Strong, fearless. And when he has come, is come, is in the apostles. When is the arrival of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost? It's the day of Pentecost. There is no doubt about it. This is a fact you can be 150% sure about. It's the day of Pentecost. 
There's an outline on our website that some extreme person preached recently that's 32 pages, single space long, about the day of Pentecost. And that man, I believe, took a number of weeks to do that. Just to work through that one simple chapter of Acts 2, there's nothing even complicated in Acts 2. But everything in Acts 2 is wonderful and precious. It happened on the day of Pentecost. Luke's historical record of the apostles shows the perfect fulfillment of all that follows. When Jesus said in John 16 and verse 8, when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This is what I want you to do to study the Bible with me. What does it mean he'll reprove the world? We'll just go back and see what happened five minutes into Pentecost. And five days after Pentecost, and five years after Pentecost, and fifth, oh yeah, that's how you do it. I, I, I want to know the details of what it means to reprove the world. Then read the book of Acts and read the epistles where they put in writing what they would have said if they were talking. And you, ha- and you have it all. And we can't take forever studying the book of Acts. We can just look at a few special places. He, he will reprove. Why do we have a reproving ministry of the Holy Spirit summarized right here? Why, when Jesus knows the apostles are sorrowful, does he lay on them that they're going to have to go out and reprove the world with the Holy Ghost? Why does he lay that on them? Because he has just told them that they're going to suffer persecution like he has suffered persecution. I'm your Lord and Master. If they've hated me, they're certainly going to hate you. What have I done to cause them to hate me? I took away their cloak for their sins. I exposed their sin. Reprove the world for sin. So he's explaining why, and it, all, it should all fit together in your mind. It should be perfectly seamless to understand why right now you're being told a little tiny bit. It's very short. 8 through 11 is short. It's only a few words in 8 through 11. They're being told that right now because it explains why the world's going to hate them. Because they're going to be doing to the world what Jesus did to the world. Jesus reproved the world and exposed their sins by his words and his miracles. And they're going to do the very same thing by their words and their miracles. They are going to expose the world's sins and reprove the world for their sins. The word reprove means to express disapproval of conduct, actions, or beliefs, to censure, to condemn, to reprehend, to rebuke, to blame, to chide, or to find fault with a person. I know that's a lot of words. Let me say it again, to reprove. And see, I'm not going to apologize for the word reprove. I'm not going to adjust it. And so many commentators want to adjust it. They want to change reprove to an earlier compromise of advocate. They want to play word games with advocate, comfort, convince, convict, convert. I like the word reproof. Do you know why I like the word reproof or reprove? Because it's right here. And so I want to stick with it. They can't handle comforter to the apostles for the work of reprover of the world. We love the combination and paradox, for the Spirit makes a great difference in men. Some men he's comforting and some he's reproving. He was the friend and helper of the apostles and the indicting judge of the world. And I love that about the God we worship and the ministry of those apostles. A witness arrived from heaven to testify clearly and powerfully of the world's guilt. To reprove is to express disapproval of conduct, actions, or beliefs. To censure, 
to condemn, to rebuke, to blame, and so forth and so on. Jesus had confronted the Jews throughout his ministry. That's why they hated him, because he would confront them. And so the apostles were going to do the same thing. So verse 8 says, And when he has come, he will reprove the world. There is nothing wrong with the word reprove. I want you to love it for your God and for the Spirit of God. You know, we've, the Bible presents the Spirit of God in a picture form at the baptism of our Lord as a dove descending from heaven. Because the Holy Spirit does bring peace and does bring God's favor. But that Spirit is the Comforter with a capital C, and that is to fortify or strengthen men. And don't forget that. When the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, he brought forth dry ground. When the Spirit of God moved in David, he did great things. When he moved in Jephthah or Gideon, or he moved in Samson, they did mighty, powerful, manly, masculine things. So we're not going to modify the word reprove. There's nothing wrong with the word reprove. It is exactly what he did to the world. Preachers, second-generation preachers, Vessels of the Holy Ghost are to reprove. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, to tell you that you're wrong. 2 Timothy 4.2 The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But you're supposed to preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And that long-suffering is not showing long-suffering toward their sin and their error. That long-suffering is putting up with the abuse you're going to take for your reproving, rebuking ministry. But that's what the apostles and the men that the apostles ordained were supposed to do. And they did it. The first Baptist preacher had already done it with his great authority. Luke chapter 3 is glorious to read. I've already mentioned Matthew chapter 3. Our church services should have such an effect. Look at 1 Corinthians 14 with me. I shared this a couple times in recent updates, but I want you to see it. There is an effect that we want our church services to have because we want the same effect that Paul said they were to have. Paul was against public speaking in tongues without translation because it just looked like a madhouse. And he wanted people to know what was being said for this reason. But if all prophesy, now when you prophesy, you're speaking in the language of the audience. That's not the gift of languages or the gift of tongues. It's the gift of divine revelation of God's will. But if all prophesy, so we've got a bunch of preachers now, a bunch of prophets in the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 14, 24. But if all prophesy and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. That's a reproving ministry. He's reproved. He's judged. He's convinced. Convinced of what? The veracity and truth and righteousness of Christianity and the immorality and unrighteousness of his life. And so he's judged by it. Our church services should be that way. And so there's an emphasis on the preaching of God's word. We want them to see the love that we have to each other because the Bible also tells us that. The Bible does not say love toward visitors. The Bible says love toward one another should characterize the, the saints of God. Back to John chapter 16 and verse 8. When he has come, he will reprove the world. 
He did it to the world. And it's what we're supposed to do by our lives. Jesus had done it before the apostles, and the apostles kept it going. The error today in most pulpits is that pastors are pandering, pampering, promising. It's effeminate preaching today rather than reproving. We have a couple of outlines on our website, and it's been a long time since they were preached. Maybe they should be preached again. One's entitled Instant Preaching. Instant preaching is not mixed with water and it becomes a sermon. Instant preaching is being insistent, pressing, and urgent upon men. That's why in 2 Timothy 4, my job description says, preach the word, be instant. Oh, so be instant, it's something I'm supposed to be. It's supposed to be a character trait. Be insistent and pressing and urgent upon men. And so there's a number of pages of examples from the Bible of God's ministers being instant preachers, meaning that they were insistent men and pressed the duties of God upon men's lives. Then there's an outline entitled Rude Preachers, because the preachers in the Word of God did not have good pulpit manner. They did not have good speech practices. They unloaded on their audiences, because the issues at stake are of the highest importance for every life. We're dealing with heaven and hell. We're dealing with God's judgment and God's mercy. We're dealing with the God of glory. We're dealing with the, the God of this world and their, and their war against each other. We're dealing with righteousness and unrighteousness. And so rude preachers, and the Bible's got some. And listen, that one's R-rated. Just, okay, enough said. You have no idea. I'm a panty-waisted, effeminate preacher compared to Ezekiel. If you want to know the reproving work of the Holy Spirit, then read the book of Acts. It's all right there. Look over at Acts chapter 1 with me. Let's take a couple minutes and do that. Acts chapter 1. What's the real title, the full title of the book of Acts? The Acts of the Apostles. So when you look at John 16, 8, and you know that it's talking to the apostles, Jesus has the 11 on the road to Bethany, and Jesus said, and when he has come, he will reprove the world. Well, what did it look like? Read the book of Acts. It's all right there. Acts chapter 1, Jesus being assembled with the apostles in verse 4, being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. You heard it of me in John 16, my eleven brethren. I hope you understand every word of Acts 1-4. It is so simple. For John truly baptized with water. He's going back three and a half years now. John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Who came up with that expression, baptism of the Holy Ghost, but the first Baptist preacher, John the Baptist. He said, I baptize with water, but there's coming one after me that's mightier than I. He's so mighty, I can't even unloose the latchet of his shoe. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. The Holy Ghost came in 30 A.D. The fire came in 70 A.D. with the inundation of the city of Jerusalem. John the Baptist foretold it all. John the Baptist said, the fan is now fanning the flames. God's wrath is burning against this nation. What are you Pharisees doing out here to be baptized? Repent, you ungodly generation of vipers. Now, how's that for pulpit manner? Do you love the first Baptist preacher? How many first Baptist churches have preachers like that? Not too many. Oh, Lord, forgive the Baptists of America. Forgive them. Let us reprove them by having as scriptural of a ministry in church as possible. 
Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Men, you're going to get power. This is after his resurrection, and this is after 40 days showing himself alive to the apostles. This is one week to go. And so I ran, I ran over verse 5 a little too fast. It says, Ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. How many days hence? One week. Seven days. Because Pentecost means 50. 50 from what? 50 after Passover. Jesus died at Passover. They got the Spirit at Pentecost. That's 50. He was in the ground three. He was alive for 40 days to show himself alive. So it was one week where they were left comfortless. Do you think he took care of them during that week? I will not leave you comfortless. So the one ascended up into heaven, and the other one came and abided with them forever. And here it is. I mean, it's, we, are, we are one week away, one week away from doomsday for the world. One week away from glory for every one of God's elect that heard the truth. Wonderful statements made in the Bible. Acts chapter 2, verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Spirit's inside of them, talking through them, and they're preaching by the direct influence of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4. Within minutes, Peter stands up with the 11 in verse 14. There's hum Why does it say with the 11 in verse 14? I thought there were 11. Matthias was added. So there was 12? Okay, let's just make sure our math is right. His math is right. Is our math right? So there's 12 apostles now, and Peter stands up and explains to them, this is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 that none of you can explain, but I'm explaining it to you right now, and I'm telling you, verse 20, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great notable day of the Lord come. There is judgment hanging over this nation and everything is going to be turned upside down and turned inside out before the great day comes. Your religion, your leadership is going to be overthrown for a new form of religion. And then this nation is going to be destroyed. Verse 40, and with many other words, the testify and exhort saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. He said in verse 23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken in my wicked hands, have crucified and slain. He told the Jews, he reproved the Jews that they had wicked hands and that they had crucified and slain the Lord of glory. He said in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now that's a reproof. You guys killed Messiah. That's Acts 2. We're just getting started. Peter's just flexing himself right now. Because you get into Acts 3, 4, and 5, he unloads on them. He is fearless. I hope you understood when you read Acts 3 that by the best evidence we have in the Bible, that was Pentecost afternoon. Do you know how big the day of Pentecost was? Chapter 2 is the morning. How do we know it was morning? Peter said, these men are not drunk because it is 9 a.m. In the afternoon when he went to the temple and found that lame man at the gate beautiful, it was what time? 3 o'clock in the afternoon. How many were converted in the afternoon? 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Do you know how big that church was by the end of that day? 
That is just fantastic stuff. The Jews did not like it, so you needed to read the first three verses of chapter 4, which says that they put the apostles in the detention center, in hold. But that didn't slow them down. The Lord just opened the doors, and they went right back out and started preaching again. Are you familiar with this book? Are you familiar with this book? Do you remember going through it with your wife? Wife, do you remember going through it? Acts is a great book. Wonderful stuff. And we have our job to do, to follow along behind the apostles and reprove the world along with them. You know what I want to do. Yes, I have notes here for every chapter of Acts. I want to take you through a survey of the book of Acts and show you these men reproving the world. Which ones do I pick? It's like being in a candy, it's like being at QT and wondering, what am I going to pick to satisfy my sweet tooth? When you look in the Word of God in the book of Acts, it's so full of wonderful things. Look at Acts chapter 17. Yes, I'm jumping all the way to 17. I'm depriving myself. Acts chapter 17, there's so many wonderful things. The book of Acts is not difficult to understand. It's the Acts of the Apostles. It's the fulfillment of John 16, 8. Enjoy reading it. Realize what part of a move, that you're part of a great movement. But there's only a few that are a part of the great movement. Many of them say they're part of the movement, but they're the objects of the prophecy of the movement. Who is the spirit behind the Roman Catholic Church? The devil himself. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says it as plainly as it can be said. What does 1 Timothy chapter 4 say about the two doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church? Celibacy and abstaining from meats. What does it say? Doctrines of devils. See, all prophesied. See, just because there's 2.3 billion Christians on earth doesn't mean there's 2.3 billion inhabitants of this planet that are going to heaven. It just means that 2.3 billion have taken the name of Christ and are living like the devil and are living for the devil, by the devil, and the devil's lies. Even though it's in writing that if they really wanted to be Christians, they would reject all those doctrines. But it shows that they have no interest in truth by going against what the Bible says. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, this is how Paul evangelized. We love little statements like this. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging. These are arguments in court, like a prosecuting attorney, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. This Jesus that you all think is a blasphemer, this Jesus that your compatriots over there in Judea killed, this Jesus is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. Look at them turn the world upside down with a message of reproof. You don't know where the Messiah is? You're Jews and you don't know about the Messiah? Let me tell you who the Messiah is. They crucified him over there across the Mediterranean Sea. And this Jesus that I preach unto you is Messiah. And he fulfills the scriptures of the, of the word of God. The scriptures of God. We come to the last part of this chapter. He's on Mars Hill with the Greek philosophers in the city of Athens. And he says in verse 30, 
and the times of this ignorance. The ignorance that he's talking about is idolatry that the Athenians were guilty of. And the times of this ignorance God winked at. God's winked at how ignorant you Greeks have been for a long time, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. That is a message of reproof. That is reproving them and telling them that they are wrong. That is censuring them and charging them with a crime. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in, oh, let's not get ahead of ourselves, in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Remember, they would reprove the world of sin, idolatry, of righteousness, because there's only one that's righteous, and of judgment, because the prince of the world is judged. And those men went into strongholds of idolatry and crushed the craft. The Holy Spirit did not do the reproving by himself, but rather by apostolic preaching. Let's go back to John 16. Help me hurry. John 16 and verse 8. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin. Did the, does the Holy Spirit reprove the world of sin? How does the Holy Spirit do that? He did it through the apostles. Through the apostles' preaching and through the apostles' writing. Primarily through the preaching because the writing was to converted churches that came out of their preaching. Let me show you some examples in the Bible of this, and there are so many. They preached Christ Jesus since the Spirit testified of Jesus inside them. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. There are, there's many, many arguments, examples, illustrations, scriptures, cross-references on this point. Let me give you a few. Lord, help me. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 19. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak. For it shall be given unto you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Can, can that be any plainer? Don't think. Don't study. Don't meditate. Don't make note cards. Just get in front of them, and I'll speak through you. It is the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Just let it out for them. I wish it was that easy. I wish it was, you know how I mean that. Oh, this, look at Mark 13. Some of these are going to sound familiar or, or similar to each other, but I want you to see throughout the Gospels what they were promised. Mark 13 and verse 11. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, Mark 13, 11, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak, neither do ye premeditate. But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye. For it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Notice what it says. It's not you speaking, it's the Holy Ghost speaking. So when it says in John 16, 8, and when he has come, he will reprove the world. How did he do that? He did it through the apostles. We do not know of another way he did it. He did it through the apostles. Look at Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 11. And when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. They had direct divine inspiration to know what to say. 
down to the words. The Lord was with them. Look at Luke 21. Oh, no, I'm going to keep reading here. Yeah, we got it. Luke 21. Luke 21. There's so many, I'm losing track. Honestly, the Bible's filled with this. How do you think they wrote their epistles? Was it any different? Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost moved them to give the words. David said in Psalm 45, the Holy Ghost spake by my tongue. My tongue was the pen of a ready writer. Luke chapter 21 and verse 15. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. Do you know that it says almost identical words in Acts chapter 6 about the deacon Stephen when he preached they could not gainsay the man. He crushed them in presenting the truth of the gospel in uh, Acts chapter 6. Look at John 14. Back, now we're back to John in our three chapters, 14, 15, and 16. John 14, 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. You'll know everything that there is to be taught and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. You will have a body of content and a body of knowledge in you that is everything I have taught you in our three and a half years together. Chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. He's going to be in you and through you, because you guys have an advantage over the rest of the world. You have been with me for three and a half years. And he is going to inspire your preaching. 1613. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. This is to the apostles. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He would be speaking inside them. He would be showing them inside things to come, things that had been in the past, bringing all things to their remembrance. He was working over their memories, their minds, and their mouths. Have you seen that? Memories, minds, and mouths under the control of the great comforter that came. And they went forth with that. These were uneducated men. As soon as they would open their mouths, the Jewish leadership that was trained said, these are uneducated men, but we know they have been with Jesus because he preached just like them, because Jesus preached by the power of the Holy Ghost, and so did they. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There were gifts given and the apostles had them all. Other church members at Corinth had to hope for one or two of them all the way down the list. But the apostles at the top could do anything. Verse 7 of 1 Corinthians, let's get 6, let's get 5, let's get 4. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. The same Spirit of John 16, verse 8. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. But back up to verse 8, 
For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge. That is how the Holy Spirit communicated divine truth. But the apostles had all these gifts. They didn't have one little four-minute gift of a word of knowledge where they could jump up in a church service and go wild for four minutes and all of a sudden they're at the end of their tether and they have nothing else to say. And the Bible tells them later in this chapter 14 to sit down and let some other man that had the subsequent gift stand up. The apostles could just take over a service because of John 16 and verse 8. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. You love those apostles and, be, and thank God for them and thank God for John 16 and you get ready for the second service. Let's see if we can't have our own reproving ministries in this sick world that we live in. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, Searching what, or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ which was in them didn't signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed, this is the Old Testament prophets, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven which things the angels desire to look into. The fantastic message of the gospel that the angels want to look into because the gift of salvation to us men is so great was preached by apostles with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Isn't that exactly John 16? Isn't that exactly Acts 2? Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Calvinists don't have a clue. Calvinists, this is, just, this, this is for those of you that have had to deal with Calvinists in the past. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, they read this verse. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. And they say that when the apostles preached, the Holy Ghost accompanied that gospel to work regeneration in part of the audience and didn't in the other part of the audience. And so they quote these words over and over and over and over. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, if you've ever been around them. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. But those three descriptions, in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, were not describing the receivers of the gospel. They were describing the presenters of the gospel. When we came to you, we did not just have words. We had power and we had the Holy Ghost and we had much assurance by all the evidence that God's hand was upon us. Yes, the Lord must open the heart of Lydia, but I'm going to tell you whose word reproves her. It was Paul's word that reproved her because it says the Lord opened the heart of Lydia so that she attended to what was spoken by Paul. Don't think that there's some mystery out there. There isn't a mystery out there. It's the practical, pre uh, the Holy Spirit's a mystery because you can't see him, but it's not a mystery to us. It's all revealed plainly. For those of you that have ever dealt with Calvinists, I just shared something special with you from 1 Thessalonians 1.5. I've shared it before. I don't want you to forget it. They don't know what they're talking about. If you want to know more of the reproving work of the apostles, then read their epistles. Everybody loves the book of Romans. I love the book of Romans. Why do you love the book of Romans? Because it's the gospel of God. Is it a gospel of comfort? Yes. I like chapter 5. But look what you had to read to get to chapter 5. Hey, have you ever read chapter 1? Oh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Verse 18, Paul can hardly get started. 
Paul gets his introduction over with and unloads the wrath of God. Is chapter 1 full of the wrath of God? Rewiring men? Turning them upside down, inside out, doing things that are not convenient? How about chapter 2? That's for the Jews that would think they're better than the Gentiles. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. These Gentiles, when you're guilty of the same crimes, remember when we went through Romans 2? Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 3, what's it all about? To prove that Jews and Gentiles are all condemned. Is that a ministry of reproof? It sure is. All you have to do is read some of those. Jude, what are you going to read Jude for? Comfort? Ever try Jude for comfort? It'll strengthen you because it tells you in the third verse that you ought to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And we don't want to alter this message. The response response of the audience to the message is irrelevant. You know, this message of reproof, do you know what it did to men that were born again? It pricked them in the heart. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? This is terrible. We're sorry for crucifying the Lord of glory. What should we do? And others were cut to the heart and wanted to kill the apostles. That doesn't modify or explain a different message because it was the same message. It was just how it was received. When a man is born again and truly fears and loves God, he wants to be reproved by that God from his word. And he rejoices in that. We don't want to alter it. We want to have that same effect. The first world that they had to deal with was the Jewish world because that's the world that hated the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has mentioned that world back there in John 15, verses 22 through 25. So it was first the Jewish world and then it was the Roman, the Gentile world, just as we read in Acts chapter 1, starting at Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the world. As the apostles spread, especially Paul, they reproved the Gentile world. Paul reproved Ephesus for their ridiculous idolatry of Diana to the ruin of their craft. Paul reproved worshipers and philosophers of Athens to the conversion of some. Paul rebuked idolaters and false worshipers in many places that we are told about and many places were not. The unbelieving and Christ-rejecting world doesn't know the Spirit. The world has a Spirit. But we don't have the spirit that the world has. We have the spirit of God that reveals to us the deep things of God. And when that is spoken in 1 Corinthians 2, that is an apostolic gift. The spirit that was given to us that we might know the things that are freely given to us and which things we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the words which the Holy Ghost teacheth. That is an apostolic ministry. Paul appealing to his ministry to the Corinthians of how important it was for them to believe what he preached. Enemies of Paul testified the apostles had turned the world upside down. The wise men of Athens were so superstitious they had an altar to the unknown God. That's like All Saints Day. Since we have too many saints to put in a calendar, we'll just stick all the rest in All Saints Day. And since we have so many, we have knowledge of so many gods, we'll just stick one out there called the unknown God in Acts. Paul called it superstition. He'll reprove the world of sin. And did they ever expose sin just like Jesus had exposed the sin of the Jews? And you know, much more could and should be said about the the apostles reproving the world for sin, and they'll reprove the world of righteousness because the Jews were going about to establish their righteousness by the works of Moses. The Gentiles were going about to establish their righteousness by idolatrous heresies. The only perfect righteous man in the world was already in heaven. And they had abused him and treated him unrighteously on earth and left him. 
and they would approve the world of judgment because the prince of this world was judged. And the effect that those fishermen were having in the world showed that there was a change of worldly things. And they were able to preach that there was judgment coming. There was judgment coming on Israel in 70 AD, and there's judgment coming on the world. Judgment to come, like Paul expressed to Felix. We'll take up those three aspects just the way the Holy Spirit does in John 16, 9, 10, and 11, where we're given each one of those three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment, and then a little tiny explanation. What about you? Everyone sitting here is a sinner. You've got sins hanging over you that will press you down into hell. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only righteous man, and if you don't believe on him, it's, you're under the damnation of God. He that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, 16. What about righteousness? You have none of your own. He's got all of it. He finished the work of righteousness procurement on the cross of Calvary. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and by faith lay hold of his righteousness for your covering. And then judgment to come. We can avoid it all through Jesus Christ our Lord. Are you convinced of sin, righteousness, and judgment? then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and let's live lives that are reproving lives like we should, which we'll take up in a few minutes. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.